Hello, and thank you for tuning into Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, your host, and the clinical microbiologist and the chair of the Division of Clinical Microbiology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. For today's episode, we welcome Ben Levno from our product management team at Mayo Clinic Laboratories for a test and focus interview. Thanks for the introduction, Dr. Pritt. Today, we'll be discussing our new Kelch 11 antibody test with Dr. Dubay. But before we get started in the questions, Dr. Dubay, could you just tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your background? Uh, I'm Div Dubay. I'm one of the consultants in the neuroimmunology lab. My time is divided between uh, the neuroimmunology lab and the autoimmune neurology clinic, as well as to some extent the neuromuscular clinic where I see patients. And then in the neuroimmunology lab side, I am involved in antibody discovery, antibody validation, uh, antibody reporting. So a lot to do with antibodies. As far as my training is concerned, I went to med school in India, then came to Texas for residency. And then since then I've spent time training here in Mayo and then in Boston. Over the last few years, one of the areas of my research as well as clinical interest has been these antibody-associated or antibody-defined syndromes. One of them, which has taken a lot of my time, has been Kelch 11. It's a sort of an odyssey which started during my training when I was here as a fellow and has continued for many years till finally in 2019. With the help of uh, our UCSF colleagues, we were able to define Kelch 11 was the protein which was giving us this elusive sparkles pattern, which uh, had been known in our lab for many, many years. Great. Thanks, Dr. Dubey. Before we move on to the test itself, I just want to highlight, and we've done it many times with the neuroimmunology consultants, but I think it's important for us, our audience to know that you spend a lot of time you know, evaluating these patients. So no one knows what tests are necessary for these autoimmune patients than our lab directors who are doing really both things, seeing patients and working in the lab. So I think that's a really unique thing we want to highlight, right? No, thank you. Uh, it's, it's a privilege that bench to bedside as well as in reverse, having the ability to see these patients and then test their samples for these biomarkers. It's a privilege where sort of here at Mayo Clinic, we get to know our patients in a very uh, wonderful manner. We are able to help them by discovering and identifying these antibodies, and we're able to cater their treatment program accordingly. And many of these patients are seen at multiple different institutions before they come to see us. Many of them have been either misdiagnosed or have been given alternative diagnosis. So the work we do sort of in combination, the clinical and the lab, has led to some important clinical uh, management for these patients. Right. And this is a perfect example of that, Dr. Dubey, right, where we've seen a pattern for years and we didn't know exactly what it was. And then it's been quite an odyssey to bring this test now to where we can offer it commercially. Can you maybe describe a little bit about that process? Because I think it will help our audience understand what that really means, the integration between the clinic, the research lab, and the clinical lab. We've known about this antibody for about 20 years and the way uh, we used to call it sparkles. And the reason we called it sparkles was when we took patient samples, serum or CSF, and added to these thin slices of mouse brain for tissue immunofluorescence assay, we saw these very punctate dots in certain regions of the vertebrate brain, uh, which looked like stars in the night sky. 
So we've been collecting these patients over time. And every time as a fellow, I reached out to the managing physicians to ask what was going on with the patient. I'm seeing a very unique pattern. The story was very consistent. They, the patients had walking difficulty. Some of them had double vision. Some had slurred speech or could not swallow. And all of them were men. And most of them had testicular cancer. Many of the patients who had not been diagnosed of cancer, given our knowledge of what the story seemed like, we told them that look for a testicular cancer and they found one. So we knew that we had landed upon a very specific antibody through this workhorse of antibody discovery called as tissue immunofluorescence acid. And over the period of time, we utilized different techniques like mass spec, something, a newer technique called phage immunoprecipitation sequencing, which finally led to discovery of this protein called Kelch 11 Over time, what we have realized is the tissue immunofluorescence assay, which I was just talking about, has its limitations. And given how unique and specific this pattern is in these small dots, sometimes in a high throughput lab like ours, which receives thousands and thousands of samples, it can get missed. And that's why we modified the way we're going to test this antibody, where we are going to be using a cell-based assay to screen patients and then confirm it using this very unique tissue immunofluorescence assay. Because even though our numbers right now with patients with Kelch 11 antibody are low, we suspect that many of these cases have been missed over time because we did not have a very validated assay which would be able to pick up these patients consistently. So that's what we've been working on bringing up in our lab. Well, that makes sense, Dr. Debay. Can you just elaborate a little bit more on our methodology and the assay that will be used for this important test? As we talked about, we're going to be using CBA for screening these patients and then confirming by a tissue immunofluorescence assay for CBA, we are utilizing a newer technology where we are using a machine or a slide scanner, which is going to generate results. So manually, we don't have to go through every CBA to call it positive or negative. That will allow us to test large volumes of samples our lab receives. It's very critical to have the CBA followed by a tissue IFA for the finalization of results because we have come across some cases which are only CBA positive and do not have the disease because CBA by itself rarely can give false positive results. That's why we have tried to include tissue IFA as the confirmatory assay from which we'll also provide uh, antibody titers. Great. I, I think that happens so often here at Mayo Clinic Laboratories where these are very challenging antibody tests. But Mayo Clinic, because of the integration between the research lab and the clinical lab, we're really able to identify the most efficient way to provide the most accurate results. And it sounds like this test is just another example of that, where it's something that not everyone can do, but because of our expertise, we're able to provide a test that is as accurate and yet handles the high throughput that Mayo Clinic receives. Thank you for bringing that up. As, as I initially said, discovery is one arm, but understanding what is the best and most specific way to test these samples and allow a clinical test, which is usable by many, many physicians across the world, is also equally important. So I think since the discovery of Kelch 11, one of our goals has been to come up with such an assay and the combination of this mechanized CBA followed by tissue IFA provides us that opportunity. This is unique in that Mayo Clinic will be the first ones offering this commercially, right? 
Yes. So as far as I know, there's no other lab in the U.S. which is testing for Kelch 11 antibody on a commercial basis, as well as throughout the world. I know of some of my colleagues in Europe who are doing research on this antibody have been in contact with us, but as a commercial lab, ours would be the first one. And it's crucially important, right, that these patients have existed for, you're saying, decades, right, and they've been maybe being missed. So can you help physicians understand which kind of patients would be the right candidates for this type of testing? When I see patients in my clinic, the kind of patients I think about testing Kelch 11 are men who present with progressive ataxia or what is gait instability, along with other symptoms which would suggest that they have an underlying inflammatory disorder affecting the back of the brain, that is the brainstem of the cerebellum. Some of the manifestations from that include nystagmus, something called as oscillopsia, where the patients have this illusion that things are moving around, slurred speech, swallowing difficulties. I've had patients who have history of testicular cancer and later on develop this disease. And there are others who've just found out that they have a mass and they need further analysis. So especially men with brainstem or cerebellar syndromes would be the people I'll be thinking about ordering this test. It seems to be more common in men of middle to young age group. So probably anywhere in the range of twenties uh, to fifties, but we have had at least a few older patients as well. Another question that we get a lot, Dr. DeBay, is about other tests for these types of patients. I know that you said we're the only ones that will offer this particular antibody test, but oftentimes physicians are wondering, should I order specific tests before or along with the Kelch 11 antibody test? Do you have any recommendations for other testing that should be done for these patients to rule in or out a specific disease? So one of the things which I do when I see patients where I'm concerned about Kelch 11 is including Kelch 11, I test for other antibodies which can look like a brainstem syndrome or a cerebellar syndrome. So the best way to do that would be ordering the autoimmune movement disorder panel, which is a more comprehensive panel and includes different antibodies such as CRIMP5, anti-RE or ANA2, which can sometimes look like brainstem syndrome as we see in Kelch 11. Once we evaluate these patients more, find the testicular cancer, then some of our antibody finding approaches or the antibody we're looking for can get much more refined. Another antibody which I usually order in these patients is MAR2. It's a test which we are working on at Mayo Clinic, but is currently offered outside Mayo Clinic, but it is important to order that test in these patients, especially when you're concerned about a brainstem or cerebellar ataxia in patients with testicular cancer. How important is it, Dr. DeBay, to order tests to rule out infectious etiologies, or is there any reason that there'd be genetic tests or, or any other laboratory tests ordered before Kelch 11? Or are we really just looking for those males with rapid onset, uh, ataxia, those uh, presentation symptoms you described earlier? That's an excellent question because ultimately antibody results can take a few days to come back. And sometimes we need to start treating these patients uh, based on our clinical judgment, especially when we are when these patients are admitted in the hospital. And the treatment for most of these conditions, when we are suspecting them, is suppressing the immune system. 
So when that is the case, we have to rule out underlying infection because if we suppress the immune system in an infectious state, it might not be ideal. So in those scenarios, I do recommend that to order a comprehensive infectious workup, especially if you're going to start an aggressive immunotherapy in a patient. As far as working up for ataxia is concerned, there are a group of infections which can cause subacute ataxias. And some of these patients, when I see even in clinic, as a part of comprehensive workup, I do order those infectious agents as well. Genetic ataxias sometimes usually look a bit different, but at least from what we have learned through our research on Kelch 11, unfortunately, many of these patients were suspected to have genetic ataxias based on their initial presentation, underwent this comprehensive genetic workup for many years, and finally were diagnosed of Kelch 11. So many of them have had genetic workup, but that's not usually my clinical practice when I'm seeing these patients, because there's enough of a rapidity in terms of deterioration in these patients that you can distinguish a pure genetic ataxia from an autoimmune ataxia. Right. Thanks, Dr. DeBay. It sounds like these are really sick patients, and we really want to order this testing in parallel. We don't want to delay very long before we order this Kelch 11 antibody test or any of the other antibodies, right? No, that's, that's very crucial. As, as we say about stroke, time is brain. I think the same applies for these neuroimmunological diseases. Earlier, we can catch these patients and treat them appropriately. The better chance we have for reversing the condition or stabilizing the condition. One thing which I I should mention in terms of clinical things which should make you concerned about Kelch 11, and it's extremely important, it is hearing loss. Many of my patients have had hearing loss or ringing in the ears as their first symptom months before the ataxia, the trouble swallowing, the trouble speaking came on. So had the physicians who had first seen the patient thought about a perineoplastic disease in patients presenting with acute vertigo, along with hearing changes, with some walking difficulties, these patients could have been identified earlier. We are starting to figure, find some of these patients earlier on in their disease course, and these are the patients who show the best response to therapy, some of them becoming completely normal and going to work. But so far, it is the minority. Most of the patients we know of are many, many years into their disease course. And by that time, there's not a lot we can do as far as treatment is concerned. Right. What important points there, Dr. DeBay. Thank you. Uh, You had mentioned the panels that we offer here at Mayo Clinic Labs. You said, though, that this is going to be introduced as a standalone antibody test. Will it eventually be added into the movement disorder and the encephalopathy and maybe the other phenotype-specific panels? Yes. So for now, we'll be introducing it as a standalone antibody, but soon our plan is to introduce it into the panels, which phenotypically seem more similar to what we see with Kelch 11. So at least the two important panels would be the autoimmune encephalitis panel and the autoimmune movement disorder panel. So for the time being, physicians will have to order it in addition to the panels, but then eventually it will be included in uh, our comprehensive evaluation. That is correct. So I think one of the last questions I want to ask you is what this really means for physicians. When those results come back positive, how is this going to impact patient care, prognosis, and treatment plans for the physician? I think 
from my personal experience in managing these cases, having a biomarker changes our treatment, our approach to managing some of these patients considerably. We not only have a clear answer of what is going on in terms of the neurological symptoms, we also, it gives us a idea of what could be the underlying driver in terms of the tumor uh, for this disease. So it will help physicians in identifying the treatment regimens to utilize, identifying the underlying tumor, and to some extent, just discussing with the patient and telling them what exactly the diagnosis is. And over time, as we are learning about the prognosis and natural history of the disease, that conversation telling the patient what to expect is, is also going to be very crucial, which having a biomarker-defined disease is going to provide. All in all, uh, what I have lately is it's not as uncommon a disease as we once thought it was. Just through our epidemiology studies here in Olmsted County, it is, seems to be one of the most common biomarker of perineoplastic syndromes in men. And as I'm seeing patients from just different parts of the country, I'm realizing that the number of, we are probably seeing just the tip of the iceberg and the true number of cases is, is a lot. I've heard before some of the other common perineoplastic antibodies, such as ANA1 and ANA2. Are you saying, Dr. Dubey, that this is probably going to be as prevalent as some of those Q, RE, and EO antibodies that physicians have known about for years? So at least in men, it is going to be one of the most common antibodies. Based on our epidemiology study, we know that it is probably more common than ANA2 or anti-RE. Also, just based on our experience, seems to be more common than MA2. So we'll probably find more and more cases of this syndrome. Right. What an important test this is. I'm really excited for this to go live. I mean, it seems like it's going to dramatically help patients and reduce their journey, right? You said sometimes several years patients are struggling with a misdiagnosis. So thanks a lot for your hard work on this, Dr. Bay. Is there anything else that you want to leave our physicians with that you're most excited about with this test? I would like to thank our lab, which has worked continuously on this assay in terms of from discovery to uh, developing a test and going live. Different uh, consultants and directors, including Dr. Sean Petak, who've been actively involved uh, in this journey of finding this particular antibody and helping us develop a, this useful test. Even as a standalone early on, I think it'll help people identify, manage uh, many patients, including their tumors. Great. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Debay. Thanks for helping us better understand this test and how it can benefit patients. Have a great day. I look forward to hearing from you again soon. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to Answers from the Lab. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to tune in every Thursday and every other Tuesday.